Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to jude3project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And we're live. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the G3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the G3 Project. And today I have a special guest that's no stranger to the G3 Project. Uh, he is a, a loyal supporter and he's been on the G3 Project before. Pastor Jerome Gay, welcome, Pastor Gay. I'm honored to be on here with the Lisa Fields, uh, the Le- <laughs> not just Lisa Fields, the Lisa Fields. So thank you so much, sister, for allowing me to be on your platform. And I'm encouraged by what God is doing through you and Jude 3. Thank you. Thank you. For those who didn't see you on your last episode, you came and talked about um, Dr. Umar Johnson. Um, just give them a little bit of background. Yeah, so uh, I'm a, first and foremost, I'm a son. Uh, so this is the order I always say I'm a son of, of Christ, and I'm grateful for it to be saved by grace through faith. I'm a husband to my lovely wife of 16 years, Crystal Gay. I'm a father to two beautiful bundles of joy, uh, Jamari, uh, my daughter, and Jerome Jordan Gay III, JG3, my son. And I serve as the pastor of Vision Church uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina. So uh, those are titles I don't deserve, none of them. Uh, but I'm grateful that God has uh, allowed me, and I pray that I steward them well. Mm-hmm. And you have a new book out. Um, tell us about uh, your your new book. Yeah, so uh, I wrote this book uh, really just with with people in mind, and so it's written in a way that you can interact with it with introspective questions at the end of each chapter, and it's called Renewal, and it's based on the story of Ruth. And this idea of how we can live with a renewed perspective on every aspect of life, a renewed perspective on uh, how to recover from a bad decision. You see that with Elimelech. He makes his decision to leave Bethlehem and to go to Moab. Uh, How to renew our perspective on love. You see that with uh, Ruth and Boaz. How to renew our perspective on tragedy. Obviously with Naomi, at one point she wants to change her name to Mara, which means bitter. And so just how can we live with a renewed perspective on every aspect of life and ultimately the foundation of that renewal being Jesus Christ and how Boaz uh, points us to him. Awesome. And I love the cover. Could you show our audience the cover? Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Bam. (laughs) Bam. There we go. 
You have That's a sister yep. on the cover. Yeah, we had a sister. You know, Moab, uh, Moab. Uh, I think they were, uh, generally speaking, a dark, dark-skinned group of people. I do think it's important that, um, in particular, women of color uh, are represented and represented well. And so, uh, uh, yeah, I feel, I feel like this sister's a queen, um, and I was excited to be able to put put on the cover. We don't know exactly what Ruth looked like, um, but that I did want to be intentional uh, about that. When I was researching just other books written on Ruth, I literally found none. Uh, was was someone that looked uh, looked like us or looked like her or close to her, and so uh, I was I was happy to be able to uh, hopefully be one of the first, but definitely not the only. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that you wrote this book because Ruth is one of the most mistold stories um, <laughs> yes. in yeah. scripture. It's very popular, but it's often mistold. It's more of a uh, people preach it as how to get a man um, solely about relationships. Uh, and even though there's a relational element in the book, there's a, a greater theme that the, the author is trying to get across. Um, people, women, especially often saying, I want my Boaz. And I heard a preacher say, Boaz is dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. So why do you think that it's, this is such a mistold story? Well, it goes to kind of the theme of this podcast and why we need things like that. And that's uh, apologetics and rightly dividing the word. And I think for literally centuries, uh, people have uh, taken this story as a how to get a man story and that Naomi is teaching Ruth on how to get a man when actually that couldn't be further from the truth. When you actually study the story and the fact that she was a widow, um, there was just something that took place in Jewish culture where the next closest relative would actually take care of the women that women and children that may have been left behind. And so that's that's the point of that. It's not how to get a man. It's, it's actually her being redeemed, which redemption is the central story or what we would call the meta narrative, the all, the overarching story of all scripture. And so Boaz is what we call a Gael, a kinsman redeemer meaning that uh, uh, he, would, he would be next in line. And technically there was a relative that was closer, um, but, but he wanted to redeem Naomi and then this non-Jewish woman, a Ruth, a Moabite woman. And so it, he, he, he points us to Jesus who pursues, who seeks, and who wants to redeem the outsider. And uh, that's, the, that's the beautiful uh, story that, we, that unfolds within the book of Ruth. Mm-hmm. As, as far as what were some key things that you didn't know, but as you were studying again to to write this book that really stuck out to you that you think people need to know about about Ruth? Yeah, I think just the the opening story, right? The, the first five verses, uh, we re- we meet a guy named Elimelech and Elimelech, his name means God is my king. But this was during the time of the judges and Judges chapter 17, verse six tells us during that time, uh, there was no king and people did what was right in their own eyes. And so even though Elimelech, his name means God is my king, he didn't necessarily make decisions as if God were his king because he chooses to leave Bethlehem, the house of bread for Moab. And based on the book of Deuteronomy, that was a decision that he should not have made. He should have stayed in Bethlehem, even though it was a famine. So he makes this bad decision. He goes to Moab and uh, he it was a life, a life defining moment because he actually lost his life. And then, uh, you know, Naomi chooses to stay there and then she ends up losing both of her sons. Right. 
And so it's interesting. You kind of see that happening, opening the story within the first few verses of the of that story of the Bible. But something interesting happens in verse six. In verse six, the Bible tells us that Naomi hears that the famine in Bethlehem have been list, has been lifted. And so I call that making a U-turn. And I, uh, within the first chapter, first couple chapters, I talk about warning signs that God gives us. And the first sign is do not enter. Do not enter is clear. That is, uh, that's a street sign. I use street signs to kind of point to scripture and God's will. Do not enter is a commandment. Like it is, it, you don't need to pray about it. It is clear. You should not do this. Uh, so God will give us that do not enter sign. Uh, when we uh, pass the do not enter sign and we continue down our road of disobedience, uh, we'll see a sign called wrong way. And the wrong way sign is when we begin to encounter opposition, opposition. And it's divine opposition because God is calling. He's beckoning, beckoning us back to himself. But if we continue, we, we ignore the do not enter. We ignore the wrong way. The third sign we hit is what I call it, the dead end sign. And the dead end it's just like what it sounds. We're no longer producing fruit. We've made a bad decision. And we actually see this in Naomi's life because after her husband died, she chose to stay there 10 additional years. And I say this within the book that pain is inevitable, but misery is a choice. Hmm. And she chose to stay in that place 10 more years. But, but here's the thing, Lisa, um, we have the, the do not enter the wrong way and the dead end. But there's one sign you won't see because of God's grace, and that's a no U-turn sign. Mm-hmm. And so verse 6 is her divine U-turn. Now, she's still struggling because she doesn't want Ruth to go with her. She, she wanted Ruth to go with Oprah. Oprah. Oprah's name means neck, which is what she showed Naomi when she left her, the back <laughs> of her neck. But, but, you know, but Ruth decides to cling to her. And she says that your people will be my people and my your God will be my God. And so that's the beautiful reality of that story is that you can make a U-turn. You can recover from a bad decision because of God's grace, not because of something special within us, but because our God loves us uh, so much. And so I thought that was just profound that within those first first five verses, you see that. But then you see God's grace in verse six, that even in a place of disobedience for 10 years, God pursues us because she finds out she's still not looking for God. She finds out in a place of disobedience, being in Moab when she shouldn't have been there, that she can return to Bethlehem. And so I hope that's something that that inspires people that you can make a bad decision. Uh, You may have been in there longer than 10 years. You don't have to stay there. Pain is inevitable. Misery is a choice. You can make a divine U-turn because of God's grace. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, and very powerful. Um, when we talk about the story of Ruth, something else that I've seen misinterpreted a lot is what happens at the threshing floor. Um, yeah. when, uh, <laughs> can you, can you explain uh, to our audience what happened during that time? Yeah. Um, now, now you're talking about when she's gleaning, when she was gleaning, yeah, when she goes to meet, uh, Boaz. Oh, when she meets Boaz. Yeah. So, um, you know, when she goes there, and you're talking about the first time, right? First time, not no, not when she goes at night. When they, when they finally the last time, okay, yeah. okay, yeah, okay. So when she when she goes when she goes and uh, uh, Naomi basically tells her, you know, put on a nice robe and uh, lotion. Um, she tells her, to go, which is funny, like she she literally tells her that, like like put some lotion on, <laughs> go out there, girl, make sure you're right. What? So she's not. 
um, she's not begging for a man in that sense. What she's seeking there is redemption. And redemption, again, based on Jewish culture, because uh, uh, Naomi was Jewish. Ruth was not, but Naomi was Jewish. So at that moment, the, the next closest male relative would redeem the family. In other words, take care of the family because that was just something big. Like they were high on family. They were, they were high on, on unity. And, and men, men just took uh, the responsibility to make sure that they, uh, they took care of their families. I mean, that was something that they did. So when she approaches him, this is not her uh, initiating marriage. This is her actually saying, I want you to live up to the standard that Jewish men are supposed to live up to. And Boaz is a true man of God. And what he does is he, he lets her know that, hey, I'm interested, but based on the culture of his day, there's a closer relative. And so he's going to take it from there. He's a man's man. And, and, you, and you basically almost don't even hear from Ruth again from that point on, except about the baby. Uh, which which continues the lineage of Christ, but he initiates the conversation with the closer relative, and the uh, what we find from there is the relative initially says he will redeem, but once he finds out about Ruth, he changes his mind, and so Boaz Boaz completes the redemption, but again, ultimately he points us to the redeemer, he the the redeemer being Christ, who does the same thing. Because the only thing Ruth brings to the table is her need. All we bring to Christ is our need of redemption. We can bring all, and all we bring to him is our sin and no one else wants that but him. And in exchange for that, he gives us eternal life. So that's, that's the beautiful thing that happens there when she goes to see him is, uh, it's not her initiating a relationship or, or, or proposing to him. It's her saying, Hey, this is what men do. This is the standard of biblical masculinity, or we could say Jewish masculinity, to be kind of faithful to this Old Testament story. Uh, and she was holding him to that. So that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you brought out that, uh, the, that he lived up to what manhood was uh, in a culture that we live in, where mm-hmm. uh, the idea of manhood is different, apparently, for, for different people. I was just listening to The Breakfast Club, and yeah. Kevin Hart was talking about... Um, when he as in his evolution of a man now he kind of he almost made it seem like it was the norm in manhood for men to just be cheaters almost in a sense and and when he was talking about his ex-wife and as he evolved in his manhood now he's trying to be a better person but he almost excuses himself in a, in a way it's it's interesting how he defines manhood um how do you think in this culture, why is, do you think manhood is so self-defined? Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's because um, what, what, you know, we're taking our church, uh, we're finishing up First Thessalonians. And we recently covered First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And in there, you know, Paul talks about uh, sexual immorality, uh, but he uses the term porneia. And when you understand, porneia is kind of a junk drawer term that covers all types of sexual sin. And I bring that up because during that time, you know, the things that these these Gentile Thessalonian believers, they were used to temple prostitution. 
They were used to mistresses. We call them side pieces in urban vernacular, but they were used to that. In fact, it, 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 it was a double standard. It seemed, it seemed unreasonable to expect a man to be faithful. And uh, so when we talk about nothing new being under the sun, we see the same thing today. And so what we're doing now is we are erasing the standard of masculinity and we're doing a couple of things. Number one, we're excusing sexual promiscuity uh, as sexual freedom and empowerment. And then we're excusing um, also chastity. So we're, I mean, we're trying to get rid of those things. And so when you do that, you remove the standard. And so it then becomes the cultural norm and the expected thing to cheat. And it's the goal is now getting away with it versus actually being committed to a person. The opposite of, of that is seen in the scriptures. I tell men all the time when we read the scriptures, there's no soft men in the kingdom. We're saved, not soft. Real men understand the importance of self-denial. This is why Paul says, look, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Just because I can do it, it doesn't mean that I should. And so what we see with Boaz, Boaz, uh, he's a man's man. Uh, he initiates uh, this redemption. He lets this woman know he wants her. He wants to be committed to her. But he's even man enough to go to the closer relative based on their cultural norms of his day. And he says this. He tells this other relative, if you won't do it, I will. And so he's he's claiming he's saying, listen, I want her. I want to take care of her. I want to be a man. And we got to restore this uh, reality of of biblical masculinity. And and let's stop blurring these lines. One of the, another thing we see in our culture is just the effeminization of men. And so when you do that, you have men looking for moms they can sleep with versus women that they can actually be committed to. They're looking to be taken care of versus actually doing what they're supposed to do as men. Mm-hmm. Amen. I think that's that's helpful um, in our culture today, uh, because I think people have gotten used to that. And so it's almost an expectation. I saw a, uh, a actually a, a video with, you know, they have the social media comics and they did one and women had one and they were like, just like how uh, people take their children on the weekends to their, um, their, their significant, their, for, their ex, if they're yeah. no longer together, they had it where it was, it seemed like they were talking about you getting the child, but they were saying, well, you have the man on the weekdays. I have him on the weekends. And then we alternate weekends. Um, wow. And that was the joke yeah. uh, that they made, but it shows that that's even in the minds of women in our yeah. culture, it's like just being used to knowing that if I get in a committed relationship that I'm expected to share. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you know, uh, the, the artist SZA, she has a song called the weekend. Um, and that song, and that, I mean, it's a, it's a platinum song. I mean, so millions of people have either streamed or downloaded this song and it's called The Weeknd. And she was like, you can have him, but I'll get him on the weekend. And so uh, she's fine. It's like a, it's like, I don't like this term, but this is the term used. It's like the, a side piece anthem <laughs> that, that somehow, <laughs> that somehow being a woman on the side is empowering. And so this is the culture that we're in. And I think for the church, we got to be aware of what's going on, but we, we, we can't self-righteously judge either. And what I mean by that, we shouldn't be surprised when non-believers do what non-believers do. <laughs> like, like that's that, 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 you know, so that's the culture. So, yeah, they're going to see nothing wrong with cheating or being a side piece. And, and now we're encouraging women to be pr- promiscuous as, as if somehow that's empowering. Um, I think it, it gives us an opportunity to, to say, where does this get you? 
you know, Proverbs 5 is this beautiful picture of the end of the life of a player. And it, it, the, end, the end goal is other people are spending his money. That could be the form of child support in today's culture. And he ends up alone and confused. And that's what happens when we, when we live that way. So uh, my, my prayer is that this book, uh, not to put this above scripture, but that this will give us this beautiful, re- this renewed perspective on how love should be from God's perspective and how God's boundaries protect us. They're not designed to restrict us. They're designed to protect us. When my son was two, we put up one of those little rails on the steps, not not to restrict him because we didn't love him, but to protect him from himself because he would fall down the steps. And even though we're adults, we need God's protection from ourselves because we'll make destructive decisions, as did Elimelech. But God's grace allows a divine U-turn. Yes, I heard G.K. Chesterton say that before you remove a fence, ask why it was there to begin with. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's powerful. Um, because I think that's important. And, and as you talked about earlier, when you talked about uh, judges, um, where, where we're seeing that, where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. It's almost like what judges would say, everybody does what is right in their own eyes. Everybody says, well, I'm living my truth. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is which is the same concept and how when we all live according to our own desires, or our own truth, it becomes problematic and chaotic. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing in the culture. But like you said, it's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything else you would like to share about your book? Yeah, I just I hope that, uh, again, we we're, it's called renewal because um, what we see is how this woman allows tragedy to be a defining moment. And, and what I want to encourage people to do is don't allow tragedy to be a defining moment, but allow it to be a refining moment. And through the course of Ruth's constant love of her. And so uh, I think it'd be fair to say that for, for some, at some point in her life, you know, Ruth was a non-believer, but the non-believer displayed more faith than a believer. And God's love is so powerful that God used a non-believer in the life of a believer to restore her faith. <laughs> and then both of these women end up trusting God um, uh, for their lives. And now she goes from being this bitter woman, wanting to change her name to bitter, uh, also to believing that God was against her. She literally says that. She says, the hand of the Lord is against me. But she's the one that chose to stay there 10 years. So so she blames God for her. She blames God for her, her current situation. But God still shows her grace. Like we can be so ignorant towards him and frustrated when we have uh, when, when we're encountering self-inflicted affliction, but he still extends grace to us, and that's the beautiful reality of the story. And so, when you get to the end, who had lost her husband, who had lost her two sons, what we find is what she really lost was hope. That's what she lost. She lost hope. That's why she thought God was against her. That's why she didn't want uh, Ruth and Orpah to, to come with her. She wanted to be alone. She wanted to isolate herself in despair. But God used Ruth to say no, no. And so she lost hope. But at the end, we find that her hope is restored. And she has this uh, this little baby, little baby in her lap. And that child would, would continue for us to get to Jesse, Jesse who fathers David. And it's through David that we will ultimately get to Christ. So it's just a beautiful story of redemption. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that's a great, uh, a great theme of redemption and hope because we're living in a day where it looks hopeless. 
um, to a lot of people. And that hopelessness also leads to um, people going into different cults and groups yeah. um, that we're dealing with uh, today. Um, and that's something that you're going to be dealing with in, in January and in, down in Houston at the Conscious Christianity um, event. Tell, tell our audience a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you. So um, Conscious Christianity is really what we hope. Uh, we hope it's a movement of Christians that are woke. Um, and when we say woke, we mean spiritually woke. Uh, based on Ephesians, also based on First Thessalonians 5, this idea of being awoke, being sober-minded. And so what we want to do here is we want to address a couple of things. We want to under uh, dive deeper into understanding the ideology of Pan-Africanism and the, the primary proponents and voices of Pan-Africanism, defining and engaging comedic science, what it is and how can Christians engage it, then also black and brown identity in America. Uh, how can we talk about these things? And so I'm excited uh, to be in Houston, Texas, January 12th and 13th. Uh, top of the year 2018. And so I, I pray that people will come out and that we can continue to equip uh, the body of Christ with this. And so I'm glad for you because I, I believe you're one of the pillars of this movement of, as well, uh, taking this platform and, and getting things out there, addressing these hard topics. So I appreciate you, sister, and that you're, you're a, I think you're a pillar in this movement as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, are you going to, what, what are you going to be teaching down in um, Houston? So I'll, I'll be addressing uh, Pan-Africanism and uh, the idea of uh, what actually happened, uh, the, the African influence on Christianity. Uh, so we'll look at what actually happened at the Council of Nicaea, um, how there were tons of African Christians well over a thousand years before the transatlantic slave trade, and why understanding history is essential um, to being able to engage our present culture, because we are losing a lot of millennials to some of these uh, ethnocentric cults. And we, we, need to, we, we need to know our Bible, uh, but we got to read beyond the Bible as well. Because when we engage them and they say, I don't believe in the Bible, you can't just respond what the Bible says. Uh, at that point, you need to be able to engage from a historical and geographical perspective and how some of these, where these ideas originated. And what you find is a lot of these Kemet guys that are saying that Christianity is bad for black people. Uh, a lot of the founders of their philosophy were white supremacists. They're, they're actually quoting white men while criticizing them at the same time. And so, uh, so we just, we just want to help unpack that so that the body of Christ can be better equipped. Awesome. Awesome. For those pastors who are listening and haven't really got into uh, urban apologetics and don't really see the need, uh, what would be what would you tell them? I, I would encourage you. And, I, and I'm saying this in love, not not out of um, self-righteousness in any way, in any way. Uh, but, but if you're not, uh, you're asleep to some degree. And I want to encourage you uh, to be awake to what is attacking uh, are young. And when I say youth, I don't mean teenagers. This is college all the way up to the early 30s. And what's happening is comedic science, um, the, the teachings of just African spirituality, and the, the ideas that Haru uh, preceded Jesus, and Jesus is based on his story, same thing with, uh, with other people they see um, from, from Egypt, and the Hebrew Israelites, the Hebrew Israelites, which are able to quote tons of scripture, uh, but they're out of context and they're, they're read through an ethnocentric lens because of their how they see uh, Jewish people based on Genesis 6 and then Deuteronomy 28. And so I would say you, you need to really dig into that and realize that uh, if it's not, if it hasn't hit your church yet, um, it probably already has. And you're not aware of it. 
uh, and it will. And so out of our love for people, because we're supposed to go and make disciples, not sit and wait for them to come to our church, we got we to gotta bring uh, the fight to them, so to speak, not physically, but, uh, but philosophically and theologically, uh, we got to bring the fight to them. So I, I would encourage people to do that. Yeah, it's so important. My friend whose parents uh, have recently that brought him up in the church are now looking into uh, Hebrew Israelite um, teaching. So um, and they're in their 50s. So, uh, yeah. So it's affecting uh, affecting all all people. And that, and that goes that goes again. One of the things we got to um, realize, again, I'm going to put this up here uh, and, and why I put this sister up here is is because the, the the visuals we get of the most influential people in Christianity don't look like this. Mm-hmm. So we have made African church fathers white. We made Jesus white. We made uh, Moses white, Paul white, David white, Nimrod white, John Mark white. And John Mark was a Cyrenian Jew, which means he was an African man. Uh, the reality is that most of this, it was uh, African Christians that actually get, gave the gospel, even in scripture, to the European nations. And so uh, it's important that we we address the reality that, yes, it's been whitewashed, but that is not an accurate representation of who Christ used and what the Bible actually says. Uh, the reality is people of color in the scripture are the majority. Uh, and I'm not saying we should make we should deify ethno centuries. I'm not saying making making everybody black, but that's the reality, and that's not the version of Christianity we've been given. Which which uh, I pray that we admit that because we we got to confront that because that is also contributing to a lot of lostness and people leaving the church and going to these mystic cults. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that's so important. Um, I know you also have your own YouTube channel where you talk about uh, these issues called the urban perspective. Tell our listeners a little bit about that and how they can watch it. Yeah. So they can go to, uh, well, for, uh, they can go to youtube.com slash the urban perspective. And uh, the last one I just did, I was able to interview uh, Chris Broussard, who was uh, with ESPN, uh, but now he's with FS1. He's a strong believer. And we were talking about uh, police brutality uh, the NFL protests and how Christians should respond. And so the urban perspective is designed to deal with all these different aspects, socially, theologically, and, and to provide an apologetic, uh, hopefully a gentle and respectful response to that. But the initials are UP because I want to take our people higher. I want to challenge how we think, uh, how we should think, how we need to think. And then hopefully, uh, like you, uh, get, get the word out. And so, uh, again, you paved the way. Uh, God used you to pave the way uh, for some of these other shows that are that are popping up. And so, yeah, they can uh, I pray, pray they can they, they subscribe there. They can get the book. Uh, it's available at Amazon. Go to Amazon dot com, type in renewal and uh, they can get the book there. Yes. So definitely get uh, the book and uh, subscribe to his channel. And if you can go to the conference in Houston and it's a live stream option yeah. as well. Thank you so much, Jerome. How can they get in contact with you on social media? Uh, they can reach me uh, at Jerome Gay on Twitter, uh, at J-E-R-O-M-E-G-A-Y. Uh, the same for IG, for Instagram, at Jerome Gay. Um, but also uh, for Facebook, they can go to, uh, I got my author page now, and that's Pastor Jerome Gay uh, Jr., or they can just type in Jerome Gay Jr. and find me there on Facebook. Awesome. Thank you so much. And again, y'all get the book. We'll have the link in the uh, caption. 
uh, in the in the bio part of uh, in the uh, information part on YouTube. I'm not even sure what to call it right now. You're right, that's, um, all right. <laughs> that's all right. Thank you. <laughs> but thank you, thank you again, Pastor Gay. All right, thank you, Lisa. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew Three Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.